Hi there, this is Dan Delta Collins. You're listening to Wandering DMs. Wandering DMs is broadcast live every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time on twitch.tv slash wanderingdms and also youtube.com slash wanderingdms. And now, enjoy the show. Everybody, uh, welcome to Wandering DMs. Uh, I am Dan, and today my partner Paul is off wandering, and so hopefully we'll get a report from him real soon. But it's a really big day because I'm joined by two very special guests. I've got Greg Svensson and Daniel Boggs to talk about their book, The Lost Dungeons of Tonisborg, and what what a book it is. Uh, Greg and Dan, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. <laughs> We are so uh, so as as some of our viewers know, Paul normally runs the technical stuff. Um, so I am uh, managing that today. And if there's any glitches that uh, you're seeing, it's entirely uh, due to me. I think Dan has a very Daniel has a very fancy background behind him um, uh, that we'll we'll enjoy while he's on the show today. Um, other thing is, if the chat starts going really fast today, uh, and you're on YouTube, do remember we do have super chat on. So if you want a question that I missed, uh, feel free to use the super chat and we'll be sure to get that question to Greg and or Dan. So little introduction, if the viewer, if there's any viewers that don't know, of course, Greg is the great Zvenny and he's one of the very first ever fantasy role players because uh, he played with Dave Arneson as DM and Daniel is one of our most renowned D&D archaeologists and between them they've rediscovered Greg's mega dungeon design from 1973 which is actually before D&D was published, to be clear, um, after that was actually lost for about 40 years, and you guys have made it av available for us today. It's a beautiful, beautiful book. Um, so the, the first question that um, one of our longtime viewers queued up, uh, Stephen Wendell asked on, on Facebook, is he really wanted you guys to tell us the story about how you guys rediscovered, how is it possible to lose a dungeon for almost 40 years and then rediscover it? How did that happen? You want to leave this, uh, Greg? Do you want to you, you want to start with uh, with at least how I, I it was can, lost? Yeah, and... was lost. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, of course, I developed it in '73, and it turned out Dave McGarry made a photocopy of it before he moved to Boston, and he put it in a box and stuck it in his attic, and uh, forgot about it. And we were both living in Boston in. Uh, 1980, and he asked if he could borrow it to make a, photo, a photocopy of it. And he was working at a copy center in uh, at Harvard University, and he, he took it home. Uh, he worked third shift, so he put it in a magazine to keep from crumpling the papers pages, and and went to sleep. And when he woke up the next morning, uh, or actually that evening, to go to work, the magazine was gone. And it turned out the cleaning lady had tossed it in the trash. So uh, that's how it disappeared. And wow. Dan, so how did you, you want to that, take over? That's heartbreaking. I was I was a little disappointed. Yes, a lot disappointed. Well, anyway, we're still friends. <laughs> so, so I, you know. 
I, I knew this story for a long time is um, Greg had mentioned it on some of the forums and I always hoped, well, I, you know, maybe something would turn up. And when I started working with Griffith Morgan as a researcher for his uh, documentary Secrets of, of Blackmore, um, he, he prompted a lot of the, the Twin Cities guys to dig through a lot of old papers, including Dave McGarry. And I was talking to uh, Mr. McGarry about other things. And he, he had sent me some papers and he said, um, you know, I've got these other dungeons. I'm not sure. I think one of these is mine. And then there's this other thing that he just labeled Dungeon Unknown. And I looked at that and my first, when I, when I first saw the file, I was like, wow, this looks like Blackmore. Um, but then digging into it a little bit more, it's like, well, this doesn't match anything in Blackmore Dungeon. I wonder if it could be Taunusborg because that was the other, you know, early dungeon we knew about. So I sent copies of the scans to Greg and I said, do you recognize any of this? And and he uh, emailed back right away and, and said, yeah, that's my handwriting. That's my lost Taunusborg. So, yeah. Yeah, so that's it turns great. out um, <clears throat> that I, whoever it was, someone made a, a photocopy that, that David McGarry had back in probably 1974 when he first went to Boston and he may have taken that with him and then packed it up when he moved back. Um, he, he moved back and forth to Boston a couple of times and that box of stuff that he, that he had got, as Greg said, put in a, in an attic or a basement or whatever and forgotten about. And so it was photocopies of the, of Greg's original, and it had um, the one is that that uh, David McGarry had colored certain sections with marker to indicate things that meant something to him. Um, but really, it just dif differentiated the different sections. So it has both some of David's uh, notes on it and and some of Greg's original notes, which are really interesting because it tells us about when he first made it, what he was thinking of in terms of um, what was where and, and how it was stocked. So, yeah, I have on screen, I grabbed a, uh, a screenshot mm -hmm. that uh, our friend Griff Morgan made available on the Secrets of Blackmore site uh, up yeah. at the top of the screen right at the moment. And uh, it says there, courtesy Dave McGarry, copyright Dave McGarry there. Mm -hmm. And I think the green sections were the sections you mentioned that he colored. I think probably for secret areas, I think is what you decoded later on. And um, uh, so well, of course, it, Griff yes. made the, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's what that is. It's, it's separate areas that are usually separated by secret doors and there's secret doors all over the place. And this was before there was right. a convention of putting a little box with an S in it or that. So you had to know, it's like when you look at the Blackmore dungeon maps, you have to know what the conventions are because they're very different from from the what, what we're familiar with with TSR maps. Understood. Yeah, particularly for me, mm -hmm. um, you know. So, so our friend Griff sent you know the book over here, and you three guys uh, obviously worked on it. So it's it's Greg's original uh, dungeon design, and I got to say, I am so delighted that you that you guys made the decision to actually reproduce Greg's original 
hand-drawn mm -hmm. dungeon because i think for many years people making products shied away from that like they felt they need to have a polished product but for me i find it completely invaluable to see greg's original design there and then you've right. got an expanded version that, that you wrote dan you have mm -hmm. uh like a like a theory of old school design section that griff wrote i guess and then you also mm -hmm. have a complete rule set a complete original D&D style rule set that you've put together, Dan, that you call the, the zero edition Dungeoneering rules. So the whole right. thing here is like a complete game system all in one book. You just grab dice and you have a total game system and you have a complete mega dungeon designed by Greg and you can, you can run a whole, it's like a great gift for new players, frankly, because it's a whole game plus campaign all in one book, which is, which is really fascinating. Um, right. I had to, I had it. I had insisted that the, originals be in there somewhere <laughs> for, for me, i've been pouring over that greg and i i am so glad to have seen it so let me let me say a couple things about this and you know i got into D, &D you know a couple years later than you did <laughs> obviously right and i'm kind of in the unusual situation where i learned entirely from the book i was in a very rural area uh nobody else had ever heard of the game I got uh, the the Eric Holmes basic set uh, that I asked for Christmas, like along about 1979 or so. And so not having a mentor, not having someone who showed me how to play the game live, I was the one that read the book, interpreted it, and taught everybody in my hometown about it. So as, as someone that, that, that considers him an old school DM, I certainly have never played with such minimalist notes and so your notes here are you have the dungeon design and then your notes are generally just monster treasure on one line the end and i'm just yep. I, I personally just fascinated how someone would run a game with such minimalist notes what would if if you or dave were running this like how much how much improvising would you make around those would you be always improvising like elaborate furnishings around that stuff or what would you be doing i would yes yeah where where i thought it made sense i would describe there could be puddles there could be moss on the wall there could be uh, interesting smells <laughs> uh, what uh was there was there any such thing as an empty room like, were there, was there any room that the players would walk into and you just say, well, this room, as far as you can tell, totally empty? Would that ever this, happen for you, Greg? It did in Dave's dungeon. And I didn't really probably understand how to stock it. I just, I rolled for every room. And okay, that's what I've got. Um, and then, of course, the monsters could be wandering instead of there. So they weren't always home. Interesting. Uh, how, well, that was another question I was going to ask. How, how important were the, the wandering monsters? Like was, cause some people consider it old school gaming to be like a really tense, like you're about to get ambushed every single second by a wandering monster. Was it, was it that, uh, common no. for you or wandering monsters less common? They were not that common, no, not not continuous. It. it was, they were around, but it, there was you weren't running into them all the time. Got it. 
And when, when they showed up, were you were you drawing from like a nearby room for what they were, or did you have a separate table for what showed up? I was drawing from nearby rooms, or um, if you're at the very bottom of the dungeon, uh, I had uh, my, my super monster down there, Yelleth. So. <laughs> <laughs> T tell us about that, actually. So you have an interesting custom monster there. Where did where did the inspiration for that come from? It came from a science fiction book. Uh, the creature was on a spaceship, if I remember correctly, and I just plugged it in uh, in the lower levels. And to be honest, I, I when this came up, I hadn't thought about it in 40 years, and I didn't remember how I managed it. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's pretty yeah. funny. So so Dan, with your with your archaeology mm -hmm. with the Z rules that are baked in here, and you you know looked at original D and D, and you've looked at pre D and D drafts, you know, kind of like Greg was working mm -hmm. on when he made the design, plus yep. commentary that we have from Arneson and Gygax later on. I noticed that you're you've got wandering monster rules in there that have a much lower frequency than we're accustomed to, like in the normal book. So. In your Z rules, it says once in a while roll two dice, and if you get a total of two, then a wandering monster shows up. Is that where did where did that interpretation come from? I'm wondering. So, uh, put me on the spot, but I think I know that there's a very similar rule. This is probably what I was drawing from um, in uh, DNA DOA by Arneson where he has wandering monsters show up at intersections and you roll two dice and i think it was a six in that case if you get a six uh then you get a wandering monster at every intersection so i'm pretty sure that the, the thing about the Z rules is i really looked at things that arneson said and things that um that gary said and that they did um as you know um Gary Gygax ran a couple of online games and put out uh, his house rules for OD&D. Um, so that was one source to look at. And, and also things that like like DNA DOA from, from Arneson and other books that he had done where he put out little rules. Hey, that's an interesting idea from the guys who created the game in the first place. So I'll just weave that into the, to the rules. Um, I wouldn't put anything in there that came from anybody else or from a, from me, if I can can help it, I was trying to stay true to the original two two designers. So, and um, another point to the wandering monsters I might make is that uh, similar to what Greg is saying, if you look at the in supplement two, the uh, temple of the frog on levels there, Arneson has it that um, the the denizens of various rooms usually will we'll give a percentage of they're in this room 60% of the time and the rest of the time they might be wandering the halls or so on and so forth. So that was, it was likely the usual way they handled uh, wandering monsters, just as Greg was saying, drawing nice, from the local, nice. from the environment. Yeah. And it's also, he, he does kind of the same thing in his, uh, uh, in Dave's first fantasy campaign. He's kind of says the same thing for wilderness, adventuring is basically pretty pretty similar methodology too yeah. obviously we, we for some reason we're really focused like paul and i are really focused on how important are wandering monsters because obviously we named our channel 
wandering DMs after that. So it's always on our mind. We, we felt that we had to ask about that specifically. <laughs> Sure. So our viewer, our viewer, John Miller, has a question that I, I was going to ask anyway, because I was really interested in it, um, is that the the design for Tonis Borg certainly feels very similar, very close to Blackmore. And if I can um, pull up, because I have, there it is. So, so in the top right uh, of the screen right now, I've it. got, uh, right page from uh, Dave's first fantasy campaign. And those are the first two levels of the Blackmore dungeon. So level one on the right, level two on the left. And among the things that are interesting is they're a little sparse, uh, like Gygax's uh, original dungeons use up the whole the whole page. Like every single square was a room or hallway for like the top level of his Greyhawk dungeon. These are a little bit more sparse. You have kind of thin tunnels running around and there's a lot of diagonals. There's a which usually makes like player mappers very unhappy. If I'm running a D&D session, I go, now this is going northwest. The, the, the mapper is, is, you know, groans and shakes their head and like, oh God, here we are with this. There's a lot of diagonal elements and kind of oddball shaped rooms around. And then um, if I go back to the picture of, uh, of the Tonisborg dungeon here, uh, right there, Right, so there's the hand version of Greg's. Again, a lot of diagonal elements. And um, the other thing, Greg, is you have lots and lots of up and down vertical elements. You've got stairs going down three or four levels and you have pits and yeah. fire shafts. And the, the entry stairs don't even go to the first level. The entry stairs go to level two instead, which I thought was really clever. And at some point, I think Griff counted like 33 up and down elements just on a single level. Why? Why? Why why so many diagonal elements and why so many up-down elements? I can't really explain it except that uh, Dave Arneson and I sat down and I had I had tried to do a dungeon earlier but I had just taken a uh, a maze book and opened up one of the pages, picked one of the pages and I created my first dungeon on that. And then when John Snyder uh, led a group in and, and made every right turn to get right to the main treasure place. I said, oh, this isn't going to work. Uh, so I, I started over to design an actual dungeon. And Dave actually was looking at um, publishing a, here's how to design a dungeon. And he gave me a, I think it was about a two page uh, instructions on how to do it. And I did it all randomly. I rolled dice for every curve every stairs i rolled really? dice to determine how far they went up and down um so it, it was totally randomly wow. generated mm -hmm. okay yeah I, I, you uh, know i at some point i kind of wanted to ask that and i kind of didn't dare honestly i'm so glad you, you said that that's fascinating mm -hmm. if you look yeah, at he, the um i if you if you look at levels one to six there's more connections in those because you're using a six-sided die and then it kind of starts over again so oh oh brilliant is there any chance that you have that's, that's what the, griff says i haven't have? actually checked that but that's what griff had said yeah okay got it got yeah. it have you ever uh you know in our in our viewer uh stephen wendell is reminding us that um 
There was a solo random dungeon generation that appeared in the first issue of the Strategic Review, um, mm -hmm. I think in 1975. And then that was basically, yep. And then it was basically republished in the first edition DM's Guide, which a lot of people know of. Was that was that the, was that a, a pre pregenerator pre of of uh, what what uh, Greg was using, or totally unrelated? You think it's it's completely unrelated. Yeah, I have no have idea. you guys found that document? Yeah. Have you guys found that that two that the two pages that Dave told you how to how to make a dungeon with? Is does that exist? I don't think it exists anymore. If if it does, <laughs> it's in Armisen's library. Not uh, you know it would. Be in his daughter's uh, daughter's house, probably. Mm -hmm. Is there any chance that Dave McGarry made a photocopy and it's somewhere in his files? <laughs> I I wouldn't have given it to him. <laughs> I think I returned it to Dave. So the, the closest thing may be that if you look at um, the Locke Lumen material in the first fantasy campaign, there's a mention of um, generating tunnels um, and a die roll for that, but it doesn't have you know it doesn't deal with stairs or or anything like that. So that's the and I there's a, a level of complexity to both uh, well certainly to Blackmore and and Tonisborg that goes beyond any any random role. So I think that the the instructions would have been more of guidelines rather than, you know, here's a bunch of tables and you roll on those. I think it's it's more along the lines of uh, okay, at the end of the corridor roll to see if you have a stair that goes down three levels that, or roll to see how deep your stair is. And then um, connect things up that way because there's no way you could generate well, maybe if you had a, a very complex computer program, the sort of connections that you get with Tonisborg from level to level to level to level, um, or with uh, with Blackmore Dungeon, which is about twice the size, really. Um, they're right. extremely yeah. complex vertical mazes of the sort that, uh, to be honest, I don't know of any dungeon that's been made to date that is as um complex it's like finding a rolex in a stone uh they're they're really amazing the way that um the way that they are put together so it's it, it's funny dan that you mentioned uh a computer program because as a as an ex-computer game mm. programmer and that's how me and my co-host paul met um at one point i did make a th i myself made a 3d maze generator and it did actually have all these, you know, unitary up, down, up to mm -hmm. one room, over, down five levels, and there's three rooms, and it's disconnected from the rest of the level. And I never mm -hmm. ran a game with it because I felt like, oh, this is far too complicated, and the players are going to be really angry at me. And I actually shied <laughs> away from that. And then when I looked at, right, then when I looked at Greg's Tonisborg, I was like, this kind of, this kind of echoes and has that feel of of those components, mm -hmm. which I personally like myself but i think maybe speaks to the level of expertise of the players that greg was playing with um because i i actually at one point didn't dare throw something like that at my players 
Right, um, right. How, it's how, also how, about the um, the purpose of the game, or the 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 way that uh, play was being designed around the idea of exploration as a as a integral component of the game. You know, you're going down in this deep hole, and what's around the corner, and how do I get from here to there? With all the secret doors and up and down passages and so on and so forth. So it was, it was uh, an exploration focused game. Uh, and I was as part of the fun in enough dungeon expeditions in Blackmoor that I had most of it memorized. Mm -hmm. Okay, I, I couldn't do it. I could didn't couldn't do anything near that. Now, I mean, I probably couldn't find my way into the first level, but you know, fifty years ago, I I had it memorized. That we didn't make maps. I, I sympathize with that. You didn't make maps. Is that, did I catch that right? Not not after the first few games, because I knew where we were. Wow. And I remembered Amazing. and I could I could tell people how to get out from wherever they were. Wow. I couldn't mm -hmm. do that now. I, I couldn't have done it five years afterwards even. Um, so I hear that. I, Greg, you, you could speak to this, but it's my understanding that Arneson would draw little sketches of the rooms in order to help. Um, that would, that happened. Yeah. With the verbal description. Or, yeah. 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 Or actually on the first dungeon expedition, he actually took us into the laundry room in his house and had us line up in our marching order and then turned off the lights and did some screaming and then looked at where, what we did and where we went. And that was, that was our moves. It's interesting to think about this this early moment of like pure experimentation of, you know, I think I tried something like that once myself. And, you know, then it was like, not all the players are happy with it. If I get someone who, you know, physically themselves can't move super well, that's going to be a little bit unfair. And um, like I myself tried that like once and then you know, never did that again myself. So it's really interesting to, to you know, hear about this moment where we, we have no idea what this game form is going to turn into at this point. Um, so uh, really, really fascinating like that. Let me ask a couple of other questions. Our... So, um, yeah, go ahead. No, no that's fine. <laughs> I was so just going to say that was questions. probably our first encounter. <laughs> There you go. It, it feels that feels like the first the first. OK, so on that point, Greg, I guess I have to ask you and you've probably told I know you've told this story before. The fact that you are you were on the first ever dungeon delve that ever existed yeah. in a fantasy game years before D&D came out. And you are also the only survivor. So if it wasn't if it wasn't for you, the very first dungeon game would have been a TPK, as we call it now, a total party kill. How, right. how well, it, was it, it that you, Greg, were the only survivor? I should have. It should have been a TPK, but the bad guys, <laughs> uh, the wizard and the Belrog that were fighting us, uh, decided that they wanted one to escape to tell the story of how terrible it was, so that no one would ever go down there again. And of course, everybody wanted to go down there again, but uh, that was they. They wanted to frighten everybody away, and so they. When I was the only one still standing, uh, they just stopped and, and they actually showed me the way out because at that point I was lost. Wow. 
<laughs> well, thank, thanks, thanks to them, we we know about we know about the Black Bar Dungeons, and I would like to emphasize, like, if you were playing D anD D for the very first time, and maybe you rolled up first level characters, and you go to a dungeon, and there, and you wind up facing down a wizard with a Balrog, that is a DM that's not pulling their punches. I would say that's that. Yeah. That's pretty. That's pretty close. To, that's going to be either a TPK or pretty close to that. So uh, uh, Dave was not pulling his punches. It doesn't sound like. <laughs> no. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. I had a I had a question from uh, one of our viewers, uh, Jeffrey. I got this on the original D and D uh, forums, the ODD seventy four forums, and it, this was on my mind too. Is the the actual. Um, when it was published, the D&D rulebook said that usually most of a level should be empty. Most of a level should not have monsters or treasures. And I think the focus here, again, is like on the exploration. Where are the monsters? Um, and the book actually says like only a third of the rooms or less should have monsters in them. Tonisburg mostly has monsters in almost all the rooms, like... Mo, you know, many of the levels, every single room that you've got keyed has got a monster in it. There's just a couple places that that don't have monsters. Greg, do you think was that was that common from like your play with with Dave? Do you think that was common for the time that almost every single room had a monster in it? No, I think I probably misunderstood uh, the the playtest uh, dungeon stocking rules. And just rolled for everything, so I don't. Got it. I don't think it was that uh, devious or whatever. Yeah. Got it. Now, unfortunately, I think that uh, Greg's camera seems to be um, uh, seems to be a uh, uh, lot stuck uh, at the moment. Hopefully, uh, hopefully he'll come back uh, momentarily. We can still hear you, Greg. Okay. Um, I could try. Maybe try. Maybe it, try. It back yeah. The, the only thing I might mm -hmm. ask, maybe try, um, ref I hate to even ask this, maybe because uh, hit, hit, just refresh your browser, just hit F5, and maybe it'll come back in like a couple seconds. F5? Yeah, that usually refreshes a browser. Hopefully I, hopefully I don't lose Greg there. Yeah, okay, perfect. Here? Yeah, it looks good like. Good job, yes. Yeah, good job. Thank you for doing that. Well, um, um, so we can we can talk about uh, the stocking list if you want in Thomasburg because there's let's talk about, some and, interesting. And, and let's do it. Oh, yeah. And Dan and I have had conversations in the past about mm -hmm. this, so I, I actually kind of inter am interested in this. Actually, how was it stocked? So, <clears throat> I there's a, there's evidence of of two different stockings, right? So. On the maps themselves, there's little notes, particularly to uh, a couple other places. There's little notes of something that might be there. In one place, there's a suit of armor. In another place, there's a prisoner in a cell that's um, listed as uh, heavy foot, I believe, which is a chainmail term. And when you look at the stocking list that that Greg has on the side of the map, that's there's you know you don't find any of that. So I think when when he first made the dungeon in 1973, he's just using the chainmail chainmail books, and I don't know if you remember any of this or not, Greg. Um, 
And, but then, <clears throat> and I don't know, um, it's, he's, you, you weren't using, I can say this for sure, the, the earliest play test document to stock the dungeon, but you must, uh, you, maybe you had a copy of the, um, of the pre-print I, books, I had because a copy of chain mail, and I thought I had a copy when I mm -hmm. did this of of pre, um, mm -hmm. a, a pre, a, well, I call it a play the test pre -D -D copy. Print. Yeah, yeah. The uh, reason I I say that is because there's a couple of items in the list that that don't show up on the earliest draft, but do show up in the print. Uh, of the the uh, original Dungeons and Dragons that are on your list, so you must have had a later later um, preprint copy, or else you got an early print copy of the, of the three books to use. And then I didn't followed get the print copy story. until the fall of seventy four, or so. Yeah. <laughs> it was probably not yeah. that. Yeah. So it had to have been a it had to have been an early one. It had to have been because. Uh, Dave McGarry had these before that when he went to Boston. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so some of us can get so pretty, it wasn't our, get pretty it wasn't deep. Earlier stock. Yeah. Right. And then, right. Now, and then like Dan and I can, mm -hmm. Dan and I can cite like scholarly references, to, like four or five different, you know, preprint developments before D and D got published. But right. um, I agree. Clearly, Greg was obviously working from shortly before D and D was going to get created, and the, and the the list of the monsters right. and the treasures and the stocking are clearly from that. One one question that I had to both of you is to your to your knowledge that that first list that's you know basically in published D and D that first list of monsters and list of treasures. To your knowledge, who who initially drafted that? Was that Dave or was that Gary? To your knowledge. I didn't see what Dave sent to Gary, so I don't don't really know. Okay. Do you have a guess on that, Dan? Uh, for the dungeon stocking list, I I think that that Gary drafted that, and yeah. I think he was influenced by um, by David McGarry's dungeon. Um, right. Uh, list. The dungeon game. Yeah. Yeah, the dungeon game for and the I'm monsters. Really yeah. The board game. Yeah. yeah. So I'm mm -hmm. not so how, talking so, so much how about each the... one had, uh, you know, harder monsters as you go down. That's that was something that that um, originated with David McGarry. Yeah. Um, so I'm actually not talking about that. I'm talking about the, the list of monsters. So like, you know, the, the mm -hmm. very first page and what's volume two is here's the monsters oh, yeah. that are going to show up in D and D, and in that same volume. Uh, you know the the letter treasure types, right? That right there. Does that does that smack you as um, does that smack you as Dave or Gary's work? I asked the hard questions. <laughs> and and I have, or is I have that, to is say that I don't not known. I I don't know. Um, I don't. So I did have I those tables because I remember the letters. Yeah. Right, right, mm -hmm. right. 
uh, I think that that uh, Gary is work is is elaborating on what uh, what David sent him in in terms of the treasure types. You, you see something mm -hmm. almost identical in Arneson's treasure types, which is okay. something that goes back to like 1972. And I think um, you know Gary saw that and said, okay, well we'll just. You know, if dragons have a treasure and, and they're like this, well, every monster should have one. And it's, we'll just give them all letters. That's what I think happened. I think that's a pretty good guess. I think I'm in, I think I'm sliding in the same direction as you, Dan. That's my, I agree mm -hmm. that the, um, the, the, the increasing difficulty of levels like McGarry's dungeon game looks like it got written by mm -hmm. Gary and those, that list of monsters with the, with the lettered treasures looks more like a Dave thing to me, but. Yeah. I'm, I'm I'm very far away, so that's total speculation on my part. But I think that's <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if that's the case. Yeah, totally. <laughs> but I, I can say so that, our, that Greg certainly you, you um, embrace that in stalking Tonisborg. Oh yeah, yeah. I, can, I can see that. I can see that. Yeah. Yeah, very cool. So on that, so we one of our viewers is asking a question, when did, you know, and a lot of those initial monsters in D&D, there's a lot of, you know, Grecian mythology stuff, uh, centaurs and pegasi and griffins and all that kind of stuff. Um, there's a lot of Tolkienian stuff. There's elves and dwarves and gnomes and hobbits and stuff and, you know, giant spiders and stuff like that. And then among like the very first novelty custom things in D&D are the whole list of slime monsters. Uh, green slime, yellow mold, gray ooze, ochre jelly, black pudding, stuff like that. Um, so you, the Tonisborg dungeon has yellow mold, it's got black pudding, it's got that stuff. And our viewer uh, Perkins Dearborn was asking, when did, who, who, who first got hit by green slime basically? Was that part of the Blackmore dungeons? Or did I, that did that show up later? I don't know who did that, but I know that the black pudding was the monster where we got put put in that hallway in in the basement, the laundry room at Dave Arneson's on that first adventure, and that oh. monster was based on the the uh, a Japanese sci-fi movie, The Blob. For what that's. <laughs> So you're telling me the very first monster you ran into was a black pudding? Is that is that am I hearing right? That right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> and and which way we ran was determining what, uh, whether we ran into it or or didn't. Because I got to say to viewers, if you don't know, the black pudding is one of the most horrible monsters in original D and D. The, the initially the the hit dice of monsters only went up to ten, and the black pudding has the maximum number of hit dice. So um, right, apparent, right out of the bag, Greg got hit by the single worst monster in the book for, for, your, for, for the first room, which is like just stunning. That's amazing. <laughs> amazing. Wow. Um, you know, I think that because there's a dungeon by uh, Bill Webb. Um, uh, and it, all of a sudden the name's escaping me, even though I played it a bunch of times. It, it similarly has like a horrible black pudding like on the first level. Um, and, uh, spoiler alert, but I think that's probably inspired by, by that story. Probably, um, Could be. really fascinating. <laughs> okay. Now here's a question. So in the, in the, in the core, the core books, it, it, the, the, 
it basically explicitly says to scale the number of monsters to how many players are present. So you bring twice as many players tonight, now you're going to be confronting twice as many monsters. The, the monster lists that I see in Tanisborg, you know, the, the area lists, and also in Blackmore, are a fixed number. When, when you would yeah. play, Greg, were you scaling the number of monsters to how many players showed up, or were you not doing that? Not at all. Interesting. I was not. It never so did you ever feel it was too easy? Like if, two, if, 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 two, if a whole bunch of players brought their friends, did you ever feel it was too easy, or did you not worry about that? I didn't didn't worry about it but we were i don't think i did more than four or five people so you know how many could you fit in our living room uh, Interesting. <laughs> our, our apartment <laughs> living room uh, uh yeah, the, no the i didn't book, do any scaling that, so interesting really that's that's really interesting to me because some people would be um you know, some people would be very vehement that 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 has to be part of of early gaming. So I, I personally like hearing that you know the different approaches like that. The I, a part of the theory, part of the Tonisborg book that I think Griff wrote is you know highly recommends um, bringing henchmen, right? Going and hiring non-player characters. How big a part of your early gaming, Greg, was was bringing a bunch of NPC henchmen that you'd hired? Did that happen a lot? We did do that, yes. Uh, that first adventure, there were 30 men, but there were only six players in the main party um, that went down. Um, the Great Spenny hired henchmen regularly. Um, now, sometimes it was just the players, but uh, other times we, we took our little uh, armies with us. They're all funky. Was that consistent? I mean, did you, did you continue to have like thirty characters with you for the years that you were playing, or did that no, ramp no, down? No, over time? It, it was it was usually just the guys. We weren't, or you may have one with you, someone someone helping or carrying your stuff. Or <laughs> there what, what do you fit? There weren't armies I mean, going down in the dungeon, definitely on a normal got basis. Got it. And I remember Dave McGarry telling me that his his first experience was like one character and forty or fifty soldiers with him or something like that. What what made that decision? Like what what do you think triggered the decision about whether you're going to bring an army or not? The person had to have the money to hire him. <laughs> <laughs> which, which at the start was a challenge. That's great. <laughs> That's great. Um, the it, you know the other thing I noticed in the book was the the part that Griff wrote um, says that I guess when he was playing through Tannisborg, he was regularly having a, a player loss rate, like a kill rate of like ten or twenty percent of any particular expedition. The the PCs were getting were getting killed. Was that was that true for original play? Was it like were you slicing off? one out of five characters every expedition or was that was it more or less than that do you think i don't remember to be honest um i know there were some individuals who had a problem dying regularly but <laughs> i know the type i know uh, the type yep but that wasn't everybody uh, 
some people had a style of, uh, I don't know, kamikaze, uh, <laughs> charge, charge in every time uh, without thinking about what the best strategy is, what the best tactics are to get by the I think some of us call that the Leroy Jenkins approach now. I think that's that's an mm -hmm. internet meme, I believe. It's, it's a fairly yeah. dated internet meme, but that's the one I know. <laughs> yep, uh, my yeah, my son. I, I know that. the type. <laughs> there you go. Now, I when I you know when I play, I have I know some players are you know super aggressive and they don't mind rolling up new characters, and some players are very strategic and they've had long running characters. So I very much know the type. Um, uh, how f how fast did it see? I'm a numbers guy, just to be clear. So I'm gonna I ask all these like as Dan would expect. I'm gonna ask all these detailed questions about percentages and rates and all that kind of thing. Generally speaking, how fast did and and you know like like Dan's Z rules outlines what to me is a very novel way of awarding experience. I get, you know, based on, I guess, our understanding of what Dave did, it's very different than what the core D&D &D books say to do. So I'm wondering how fast in your experience, Greg, characters would level up. Would it take, you know, three adventures or six adventures or 20 adventures per each level? Or about how fast would people advance through the D&D &D level system? Well, when we first started Blackmore, Talking Blackmore, I assume uh, this is back in '71. Yeah. Uh, we had flunky hero and superhero, and you just had wizard, okay, and mm -hmm. elf and dwarf. There weren't, there were only really levels for the fighters. And uh, I mean, Bill Heaton went from a flunky. We were we all started as flunkies when we started that first adventure and and he was he became a hero when he was the only or the first one who could pick up the magic sword that we found. He became everybody's hero and was elevated to the hero status. Uh, and my character coming out of the dungeon became a hero uh, at at that point. Um, and it was probably five or six months later when I became a superhero. I don't remember, to be honest, but uh, at some point, and and that was just Dave Arneson saying, you know, you're a superhero now. Okay. Interesting. So you weren't you weren't like adding up like ten thousand seven hundred twelve experience points from from day to day. You weren't. That wasn't part of no. the play at that time. No, that wasn't part of the play at that point. Um, Dave could have been doing it in the background because he had a character. He had our character sheets initially. We didn't have our own, and it was an index right. card. Um, so he could have been keeping track of that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. Yeah. Well, that, uh, that Greg, if you cool. remember your. Go ahead, uh, sorry, your. Um, Second edition chainmail. You had some notes in the back of that. Mm -hmm. um, I do. Where I know I have he, it. Yeah, uh, you, you had it. Yeah. So, the, and, and of course, second edition came out a little later. So this was, you know, yeah, those, it had developed that, to the point where um, Arneson had, had, I think it was a thousand. You, you had to get a thousand points to level to 
to go from flunky to hero, as I recall. And that was the points are basically the hit points of the monsters. And so he was probably in, in he was probably tallying yeah. all that. Yeah. Yeah. He, he probably was. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. And for, um, for people that don't know, there, there are some of these terms that us old schoolers know. Um, when D&D came out, hero was the title for fourth level fighters and superhero mm -hmm. was the title for eighth level fighters. So there was a lot more granularity inserted in the system versus what uh, Dave, Dave Arneson was doing initially. So that's when you, when you say hero, I hear fourth level. And when I hear superhero, I hear eighth level. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's right. Me. So that's right. Um, except that I think there's pretty good evidence that um, you could be a hero. Your, your hero, you have four dice, but you could also be a hero with six dice, for example. So I think that there was, oh. there was intermediary stages, but they weren't called levels. Interesting. The terms hadn't come up yet. Mm. <laughs> Right. Yeah. The whole well, of course, and then and then once they hit level, they just use it for everything. So the spells, the dungeons, the characters, yeah. the monsters, everything yeah. was leveled at that point. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> Fascinating. Um, I'm gonna have to keep an eye on the time here to kind of respect it. I could talk to you guys all day long about a bunch of stuff. I'm gonna I'm gonna ask one I'm gonna ask one other detailed hard question. Just because I I want to hear it is for in your mind, Greg, or for the for the early play, if you had if you had a hero fighting another hero and they both have a sword, one round or whatever you want to call it, one round of combat, does that represent like one swing per side, or does it represent like a whole bunch of parrying and flurry of and steps and back and forth and maybe one of the many blows gets in is it is it like literally one blow of the weapon or is it like a whole bunch i haven't thought about this in ages um <laughs> i i'm so used to now the oh it's 10 seconds or or whatever uh or six seconds that uh i don't don't think in those terms anymore uh, at the time i probably thought of it as one 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 swipe with my sword um, or one chop. attempt, or one chop. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's and that's what I see. You know, in Dave's writings, he says one chop a lot or one blow. That's fascinating. That's that's that. I, either way, either whatever the answer was going to be, that was going to be fascinating. Really good. So, so if you're accustomed to you know six second, ten second rounds, do do you do you play currently, Greg? What 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 kind of rules do you use when you play most recently? Um, I'm in a play-by-post game online in Discord that I've been in for 15, 17 years uh, at this point um, with different characters over over time. It's become generational, I guess. Um, and we're using the 3.5 rules most of the time. We've done some OD&D as well. Um, so that that's the thing I'm most familiar with is the 3.5 rules. Fascinating. The, the people you play with, is, is there people from the old Twin Cities days or is it a whole new bunch of people it, that you're interacting it's with? It's a bunch of different people. Uh, uh, they're all over the world. Uh, Raphael's the 
dungeon master and he's in Germany. Uh, Raphael, Raphael San Miguel de Turin. Um, Harvard, you've heard of Harvard. Harvard, he's, he's been part of it in the past. Um, other guys, some are here, some are in Europe. Wow. Wow. That sounds great. That sounds amazing. That's so we are. I, that's great time. to hear. I, I'm, 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 that's, that's great to hear. So every, every single one of your answers makes me want to ask five more questions. So um, to, to be, be respectful of everybody's time. And of course, uh, many of us have are going to be part of a, uh, participating in a big game today. Uh, maybe D&D, maybe not. Um, but uh, I got to thank you guys so much for being on. It's, you know, it's, it's such a nice book. And so, um, again, Greg, were, you know, it's Greg's original design. Dan has his Z rules in here. So if you want to give it to a brand new player, just give them dice and shake, and you'll have a whole campaign here right out of the book. Uh, our friend Griff Morgan, again, sent this over, and he's got the kind of the theory part in here. It's just a wonderful production. Great um, you know, update to the maps by, I think, Toby Lancaster. They look great. And um, uh, the, fa the fact that this came out right last year was the 50th anniversary of this first ever dungeon game that Dave Arneson ran in Blackmore. So the fact that this is available now 50 years after Greg started playing with Dave, I think is just really marvelous. And having the, the exact reproductions of Greg's hand notes is totally invaluable. And I really can't thank you guys enough for uh, putting that product out. Uh, it is, so the, the first printing uh, is, you know, was in the past but you can still order a second printing of the same book. Uh, if you're on YouTube, I have a link there uh, to go to the site that you can order second printing right now that they're taking orders for, and it is really, really freaking beautiful. Um, do you guys have any last thoughts about stuff that we didn't mention about the Tonus Board book that you want people to know about? Uh, I, I would just say that, that even if you're, you know, we, we wrote the book in such a way to appeal to everyone from new players to very experienced. You don't have to know anything about uh, traditional gaming, or you don't have to know any of the history. We we cover a lot of that, and our goal really is to introduce you to uh, a, a new style or a new way of thinking about uh, about the games based on, on the way it all started out. And you can take this, you can take the maps, you can do whatever you want to with it. There's endless possibilities of fun there. Uh, and hopefully it's a book for the ages that people will find both uh, enjoyable and um, educational um, forever. <laughs> so that's, that's, that's my thoughts. Yeah, I think you hit that goal. Very... I think that's super well put. Go ahead, Craig. Mm, I'm, I'm personally just very happy to actually see it again. To be honest, <laughs> <laughs> it's a really delightful work, and you know, Greg, for for many of us, for frankly, for decades, right, we kept hearing that we were going to hear that we were going to get a full version of Gary Gygax's Greyhawk Dungeon, and we frankly never did. And we kept hearing that we were going to get a full blown version of Dave Arneson's Blackmore product, and we, you know, we saw it in First Fantasy campaign, but we never really got a full product. So, frankly. You know, you, you giving us 
an actual mega dungeon from the early years and in, in the ex the actual form that you actually wrote it and playing with is completely invaluable and as someone that's been waiting for that for like 40 years i just can't thank you guys enough for that really tremendous that makes me happy so, <laughs> <laughs> so that's going to wrap it up for us here on wandering m's this week uh if you have any other thoughts that you'd like to share with us leave it in a comment on youtube and we would really look forward to seeing that uh, remember that you can like, follow, and subscribe to us, The Wandering DMs, on YouTube, Twitch, Twitter, Facebook, GitHub, and also TikTok. We have the handle Wandering DMs on all of those sites. We also have podcast versions. So if you have a friend that you want that only listens to podcasts, this show will be available on our website, wanderingdms.com, and basically any top podcast provider. You can get our shows there as well. Big thanks to our patrons who support the show. If you want to join them, please visit patreon.com slash wanderingdms. A uh, couple different tiers. We have after-party um, chat, for example, on our Discord server about 10 minutes after this show ends every week. So if you are a patron, uh, we'll look forward to continuing the conversation over there. Um, upcoming shows on Wandering DMs. Paul will be back with another episode of TDR uh, tomorrow, Monday night. I will be back with more gaming, computer gaming from the elder times, late Thursday night. So look for us there. Uh, enormous thanks to Greg and Dan. Hope you guys, hope I can get you guys back sometime for another batch of questions. Maybe that's a possibility, but nonetheless, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Yeah. You're welcome. Great to be here. Awesome. awesome. Enjoy Don't it. forget we, the Wandering, Wandering DMs are live every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern time. Two weeks from today, look for a guest appearance by Mr. Luke Gygax, going to tell us about the plans for GaryCon okay. uh, this year. So that should be in about two weeks. Uh, follow us on the socials. You'll get updates about that. But please join us again next week for another thought-provoking discussion.